I'm Krati Mehra and this is Beyond the Goals podcast. It's my attempt to help you revel in all that life has to offer without pressing pause on your hustle. We learn how to create healthier relationships, a healthier lifestyle, a career that brings us true joy and a life that satisfies us on every level. Forget the conventional ideas of success and happiness because we're going to live a life of value and create an impact that speaks to our place in the world. So let's get started. Welcome back to Beyond the Goals podcast. This is episode number 62, and I'm sharing with you my conversation with Elizabeth Svoboda about compassion. And during the course of this conversation, we talk about how compassion differs from empathy, why it's such an essential part of our emotional toolkit, how kindness and generosity impact our brain health, how to cultivate self-compassion, and how to create a place of safety and love within ourselves. And finally, how we can show compassion to others without letting our own peace or sense of safety be endangered. So really a lot of very deep questions, but all of them very, very important for our emotional and mental health. And also I think um, the entire subject of compassion, its understanding is what can help us show up in a way that allows us to make the world just a little bit better. And considering everything that's going on in the world This is knowledge, this is information that we can all use. Fortunately, Elizabeth has explained everything beautifully. More importantly, she has shared very practical, actionable advice in very simple words. And from my own experience, I can tell you that practicing compassion in a deep, meaningful way can create profound changes within us. When we practice self-compassion, it makes it easier for us to treat others with love and kindness, even during the most difficult circumstances. And when we practice compassion towards others, we are able to bring some of that kindness into play when we are disappointed in ourselves and we are angry at ourselves. We are able to to show that same generosity to our own selves as we do with others. I also want to mention that we have discussed this topic before as well, but from a different perspective with Brad Aronson. I will share the link to that episode in the episode description. But for now, let me introduce my guest, Elizabeth the author of What Makes a Hero, The Surprising Science of Selflessness, a book that was a direct result of Elizabeth's uh, very healthy obsession with the origin of heroism and altruism. Elizabeth has been trying to get inside people's head from the time she first cracked open a book. She was always drawn to questions of moral motivation. Elizabeth is a science journalist, and she has written for publications like the New York Times, Psychology Today, the Washington Post, and Scholastic Choices, and she has even received the Everett Clark Seth Payne Award for Young Science Journalist. Her stories have covered a myriad of topics from the biology of resilience to the psychology of thoroughly modern breakups. In the process of writing her first book, What Makes a Hero?, Elizabeth met and heard about dozens of incredible heroes of all ages. Realizing that it was no obstacle to heroic action, Elizabeth decided to write another book, The Life Heroic, How to Unleash Your Most Amazing Self. This book is especially for young heroes in training who want to transform their communities. Today, as part of our conversation, we are going to hear a few of those stories and learn a whole lot about how we can contribute to making the world a happier, safer place and be kinder to our own self as well. So let's dive in. Thank you so much for making time for this and for being a guest on the show. Uh, I am just so honored to have you here. I love your work. Yes, thank you so much for having me and for for reaching out. I'm honored to be here. 
you know, I've been reading your articles like since before the podcast happened. I've some of the articles that I've got bookmarked that sort of inspire me, give me ideas about content I want to create, something or I want to share it with my audience so that they can also learn what I'm learning. I love your work. So I am very curious to know like which one of your articles or your books or the uh, the uh, the talks that you've given the interviews that you've done which one is has like the most emotional investment from your end which one do you love the most <laughs> yeah that that is such a tough question in a way because i've <laughs> delved into so many different topics as yeah. a science writer i'm always exploring biology psychology all over the map and it it keeps it exciting but um I guess one place I like to tell people to start is with my book, which is called What Makes a Hero? The Surprising Science of Selflessness. And what I looked at there, I'd always been curious, um, even starting when I was a teenager, I was reading a lot about world wars and, and genocides. And through my reading, what came up was these stories of heroes who rescued people in these dire situations who really step forward to to sacrifice to risk themselves on behalf of others and so in this book i tried to explore what motivates people like that how do people's biology um their upbringing the influence influences in their lives the people that they meet how does all of that come together to produce somebody who's prepared to step up for someone else in a really big way. And so that was a really cool immersion. It took me a couple of years to to write that book. And I, I would say ever since then, that sort of guided the direction of my work that led me into writing for Greater Good Magazine, which is published by the University of California at, at Berkeley. And these questions of how do we move toward having a larger concern for the world, for people around us, when so much within culture, within the influences that we face, seems to be leading us in the other direction, seems to be leading us toward self-promotion, making ourselves look good. There's so much uh, stress on that. And so contributing to greater good, I, I feel like it's refreshed my soul. It's been an antidote to a lot of those messages that we see. And um, I really enjoyed writing a story for Greater Good recently about the concept of tough compassion. And this was something I had been wondering about for a while. Like, is there a way to be compassionate to somebody while still hold a hard line if they are treating someone badly, if they're showing unacceptable behavior, how do you strike that balance? And what I learned was in a lot of contemplative traditions, they do have this idea um, in Buddhism, for instance, about tough compassion, that in a compassionate way, you are stepping in and you're guiding that person maybe to a different form of behavior or, or out of the hurt that they've been, been doing. So it's sort of you know, you're in this kindness, but it also has an edge. And that that edge, the only point of it is that you're trying to improve the world. It's not like you're trying to strike back at that person for the purpose of striking back. It's more about, okay, how am I going to make this a better world to live in through this influence of mine and through taking a stand in a compassionate way? Yeah, I've got so many questions now. 
But first, I feel compelled to ask you, like you've considering you've done so much research on the subject, what do you think, like if you were to share this with the listener, someone who is not familiar with your work yet, what would you tell them makes a hero? Like I know, com- I understand compassion. We all understand compassion. And when I was coming out of my depression, I spent so much time volunteering. In fact, that was what my life was made up of during that period. But I was escaping from my pain. I don't think at any point did I think, let me just go out and help people. It was me running away from my pain, finding some refuge. And you can always find a kind of uh, solace in, you know, other people's pain because you shift the focus onto other people. I don't think that's ever going to be enough to make someone into a hero because that's a hero is that's a huge, huge title. So it, it would have to be what you're doing ha- would have to be about the other person. So if you were to try and understand what would make a heroes? That is an excellent question. As you might have guessed, there are a lot of avenues. Oh, yeah. But what you were saying, what it really brings up for me is I spent a lot of time with a Stanford psychologist named Phil Zimbardo while I was researching my book about heroism. And one of the things that he would say to me over and over is, it really is these small kind acts that build a foundation for heroism later on. It's kind of like practice. And so, you know, you're saying, well, maybe you got into your volunteering efforts because it was a way to run away from your pain. But what I would say it is in a way, it doesn't really matter what your motivation was for, for getting involved and helping others. To me, what matters the most is that you did give back the good thing got done. So I know I, I think a lot of us tend to get into questioning the purity of our motivations. Yeah. Why am I doing this? And I like to point them back to, look, you did something great for, for someone else and, and no one can take that away. And if you believe Dr. Zimbardo, you are laying a foundation for you to, if the ever the opportunity ever arises to put yourself on the line for somebody else in an even bigger way. So those everyday kind acts that he calls everyday heroism can lead directly to more of a superheroism, I guess you could say later on. Okay. But if we are trying to create a compassionate world, I think there are some elements that would have to drive our action, compassion being one of them. But I think empathy also has to be a part of it, right? But those two are actually very different concepts as I've come to, as somebody explained to me while I was, as I said, you know, while I was volunteering, I think I brought more empathy into play than I did compassion because I would, there were times when I would end up crying in front of the person who's actually looking for help, which was just ridiculous. (laughs) But so can we share for the audience, like what is the difference between empathy and compassion and which is the more dominant element when you are trying to like create a more create a more helpful, more welcoming space for someone else in pain? Yes, that that is an excellent question. And let me just preface this by saying, I don't know if everybody would agree with my answer Mm -hmm. on this. There may be different ways of defining empathy versus compassion. But for me, the way I've always thought about it is that, well, empathy is just the ability to feel what another person is feeling. So for you crying when you heard what people were going through, Absolutely. That is empathy. And that really helps you to get a glimpse of 
what someone else is going through. And maybe internally in your mind, you're also comparing it to your own experience. Well, this feels like maybe what happened to me when I went through a different kind of tough situation that maybe is similar in some way. So that's empathy. It's that ability to, to feel what they're going through. But compassion is different because it adds an action component to that. So um, empathy is sort of the prerequisite to that. You are feeling what somebody else is going through, but with compassion, you're also doing something concrete to help them through whatever it is they're suffering, whatever they're going through. And I think that can look a lot of different ways um, just in terms of compassion. Maybe you hear that somebody is sick with COVID and maybe you were sick with COVID too. And so that's where the empathy component comes in. You understand pretty much what they're going through, but then the compassion component is actually taking the step to do something specific to to help that person. Um, and, and you had cited the example earlier with, with depression, which is something that I have gone through as well. And so I, I think you and I, maybe we can empathize really well with somebody else who's feeling depressed. And then to take that into the realm of compassion, maybe you sit down with them for 30 minutes, an hour, even two hours, depending on how extreme the situation is. You, you give them advice, you tell them what helped me when I was in my darkest hour and how might you be able to apply, to apply it to your life. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, like I said, empathy is the first step and then compassion is the second step on top of that that involves action. Yeah, beautiful. And so we would have to bring compassion to the fore. Like if we were to be, if we were to invest ourselves actively into making the world a better place and doing what we can, we would have to bring compassion forth and not so much empathy because I think empathy would slow us down. We would be so sort of going internal all the time and feeling the pain to the extent where we might be sort of paralyzed, in fact. Yeah, that that's an excellent point. And that, yes, really, we can get so bogged down in feeling sad, feeling down about the world because of all the bad things that are happening to other people. And in some ways, that's a very natural response. And it shows that you have a heart, that, that you're human. But yes, I think at some point, you have to turn that around and start asking yourself, okay, this is an enormously difficult situation. I probably can't solve the whole thing by myself, but what is one initial step that I can take to show who I want to be in the midst of this, to, to help somebody who's experiencing some of the worst pain right now? And I think in my experience, when we take some of those small, very concrete steps, it becomes e easier to take another step and another step and uh, it, it eventually we, we find our purpose in the midst of something that can feel so big, so overwhelming. So we're not letting us, it, it drag us down to the extent that it was before. That's incredibly informative, but I have to ask, like, this is a weird question, but this is something that very much bothers me all the time. I, I would like to believe that compassion is something we all have, except that it seems like that's not quite true. It was especially became very apparent during the pandemic. Like we saw people who were more concerned about going to the gym and getting their workout in than keeping their family safe. To me, that was 
it's an example. I don't know if I should bring this up or not, but I, I saw so much of it happening around the world. People who were living with older, like their parents who were senior citizens, they were still not wearing masks. They were still not taking precautions. And I found it so strange that, you know, even if you don't think that this is how it's spreading, you should be taking precautions just in case what you're hearing is actually true, considering it's coming from doctors, people who are more qualified to comment on the subject than you. So to me, it this, this really bothers me. Like I see people who do things that make it hard to believe that there are there is compassion in all of us. So do you think that this is like an ever-present tool in our emotional toolkit? Or do you think this is something that has to be cultivated? It's definitely something that has to be cultivated. And I think those examples that you give of people not wearing masks, people not protecting their elderly parents. I see all of that happening out here in California. And, you know, overall, our population has been pretty good about sacrificing for others, but there are many people who do not. And I think it just points to how difficult it, it is for many people to consistently show compassion and that it does have to be uh, cultivated. It has to be practiced like like any other skill. But I think when you consider the amount of commitment and you know the the amount of work or resolve that has to go into being a compassionate person, I, I think it's good to look also at the fact that when you become that kind of person, you're enriching yourself at the same time that you're helping others. Um, what we know from the research is that when you do consistently reach forward to help somebody else when they're in a vulnerable time, that really fosters the the deep relationships between people that stretch us kind of to new heights and that are really fulfilling for us. And, and so we are living a fuller life when we are leading a compassionate life. And I think because so many people haven't experienced the truth of that, they're not necessarily motivated to pursue that. And really, I, I think a theme that I see coming up here is action, and it can be small actions. And it's through these small actions that we teach ourselves the reality that that when we show compassion, our lives become infinitely richer. And I, I wish everybody could learn that. But at the same time, everybody has to take the initiative to to learn that for themselves. And that's something that not everybody, unfortunately, is, is doing. Yeah. But I wonder, how do you initiate that conversation? Like, I can understand teaching little kids compassion because they are, you know, always learning and they're always willing to listen. But with an adult, like, how do, if some pe times people are older than you and then they consider that you just simply don't have enough life <laughs> wisdom <laughs> or sometimes people just don't want to hear it. They're impatient. They are too busy. They're too burned out. So I don't know. How do you initiate a conversation around compassion? Yes, and it, it I, and I have tried to initiate these types of conversations before. You're doing it on a very global scale, I think. <laughs> yes, and I, I think what I have learned through that is it is so much easier to cultivate compassion in ourselves and project, project that outward as an example than it is to convince somebody else to become a compassionate person if they are not already a little bit inclined in 
in that direction. Um, It's almost like with politics in a way, like if you are trying to convince somebody to adopt a different political point of view than they have, and maybe you've tried to do this too, I have tried to do this many, many times, and I have always met with failure. And I wish that that were not the case. But I, I think in some sense, it's the same thing with compassion. Like if you are in a conversation with somebody who has a history of very hateful behavior, who just has an oppositional relationship with the world, the chances that you are going to turn them around um, by having that conversation with them, I don't want to say it's zero and maybe you plant a seed for them. I'm I'm just saying you shouldn't count on that, right? Um, So I I think one of the best things that we can do, and this is more non-coercive and therefore maybe more likely to be effective, is to be that example of compassion ourselves and be a role model without saying to somebody else, you should do this, you should be like me, because nobody wants to hear that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you, yeah. you should be better. You should be, it, it sounds like a teacher. It sounds like your parent uh, scolding you, right? But yeah. non-coercive role modeling, in, in my experience, it's really much more powerful seeing that example of somebody who's in your life day in and day out living compassion that is powerful right i have never tried to have that conversation i don't think i ever will because to me it's like i'm in my head there's this question going on round and round am i being condescending am i being patronizing is i'm coming across as this like am i being pretentious i always worry about that like even right now talking to you i mentioning my volunteer work i'm like why am I, how does that sound to someone like listening to me talk? Am I, does that sound like bragging? So I always worry about that. I've never, never tried to um, initiate that conversation because I can like, I, before I even say, start the conversation, I can see them rolling their eyes at me. So <laughs> I've never tried it. But what you have shared is actually helpful because we can always create an example out of ourselves, maybe, and hope that people see. I, I always, do share my joy at my volunteer work, like whatever work that I've done or whatever I do now, I always like, I'm very vocal about how good it makes me feel. Like if I've had a shitty, unproductive day, but I so much as sent an email to someone, uh, you know, if that helped, if it was just the intention was only to help someone else, not for me to gain anything out of it then to me that's like a good day. So I always, I'm very vocal about that, but I don't know how much that's working. Like I've never been able to assess the effectiveness of that, but it's an easy way to go about the whole thing, definitely. Yes, and I share many of those same concerns that if if I talk about my volunteer work or the times that I've helped people, I'm always asking myself, does this sound like I'm trying to elevate myself or people are gonna try to think I'm putting myself on a pedestal? And Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think those concerns are always gonna be there, but when you put the emphasis on what's important, putting something good into the world and encouraging other people, you have this in you. This is a very ordinary thing maybe that I'm doing. It's not a reason for me to feel elevated. In fact, if you do this ordinary thing, your life is going to be enriched in immeasurable ways. So when it really becomes about helping others to enrich their own lives, I don't think that could be considered selfish at all, or at least that's the way I try to look at it. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a that's a beautiful way to look at it. And I do appreciate like a lot of entrepreneurs now, you know, people, especially people who mentor others, they are trying to get this message across that you have to lead, uh, like you have to make service the dominant factor as you put together your strategy. So I think that might make a lot of difference to how people approach things. But then again, if profit is leading the <laughs> the whole thing, then that the idea might get killed or might get directed in a very um, non-productive direction. But I also wonder if self-compassion plays a role here because like the people that I see treating others with a lack of compassion there is there are certain sort of personality traits that I see typical to these people like there's a lot of anger there's a lot of almost hate there like they they hold people in contempt they don't they, they lack respect for their fellow human beings so I wonder if the reason is that they lack respect for themselves, that, that it comes from within, like a lack of self-compassion. Do you think that could be that could be a part of it? Yes, I absolutely. I, I do. And I think a lot of us have huge difficulties showing compassion to ourselves. I mean, if you're anything like me, the first person that you blame when somebody something goes wrong is is yourself. And for many of us, I think that kind of self-blaming starts very early in life, especially if there are adults around who like to point out exactly what you're doing wrong, exactly what you could be doing better, beating up on yeah. yourself. I think it can become such an ingrained habit that when we try to turn that around and practice self-compassion or to treat ourselves as kindly and with as much grace as we would a close friend, that that can go completely against the grain. It's like, why am I letting myself off the hook? Why am I being kind to myself when I screwed up? And I, I think that is a natural response or is a common response that our brains throw up when we try to be self-compassionate. Um, but I, I think the truth is, and, and this is a, this is something I say as much to remind myself as anything is that when you do practice self-compassion, when you're kind to yourself, you give yourself a chance to try again when you screw up, um, you're going to come out of that more resilient in, in the long run. Like if you make a commitment to yourself that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it is, I'm going to be kind to myself and then I'm going to get up again, it makes failures seem a little bit less daunting. You know that no matter what happens, you're going to build yourself up instead of getting down on yourself. So I, I think if you keep at it, if you keep trying to practice self-compassion, no matter how hard it feels, you can get to this kind of inner assurance and, and flexibility that, that you would never get to by beating yourself up. Right. But if we are talking to someone who doesn't actively practice self-compassion, and I can tell you like from the, the time that I've spent talking to my clients, it is insane to me, but there are people who have no idea how to treat themselves with care, consideration, compassion. Like th those are alien concepts to them. Like It's like you're talking to a brand new human being and you have to walk them through the concepts from scratch. To me, that's that's crazy because I talk to people who are in their late 20s and early 30s. So to me, that's very and frightening also. So can we talk about some of the things that people can do to cultivate self-compassion? Yeah, th that's an excellent question. And I think even a lot of people who 
are very familiar with compassion, this topic of self-compassion comes as a surprise to them. It's sort of a whole different thing. And in the research world, um, people didn't start to study self-compassion at all until very, very recently. But I, I guess what I would say in terms of learning to practice self-compassion, I think it comes down to habits in a way. It's like any habit, um, it can become easier, it can become more automatic the longer that we do it. And if, if we practice self-compassion consistently enough, we really can get to a point where it feels strange if we're not doing it. It can become a huge part of our identity. Um, but what I really stress yeah. to people is it's not an overnight process. I mean, I, I have known about self-compassion for many years and at times this is still something that I struggle with. I go back into my automatic thinking, blaming myself and I have to remind myself, I have to actively pull myself out of that and say, no, really it's gonna be better for you and for this whole situation. And if you wanna better yourself, being self-compassionate is going to make the road much smoother than if you beat yourself up and make yourself feel horrible about your own capabilities. But but it's a constant reminder that I have to be issuing to myself. And so I would say to people, be prepared that you are going to fall back into those old patterns of thinking and just sort of methodically yeah, of keep going back to the self-compassion. Don't beat yourself up about forgetting to do it. Just Just kind of say, okay, I have awareness. This is what I'm doing. I've fallen out of the self-compassion. I'm going to, I'm going to try to go back to it. Yeah, that's actually helpful. And I think that would be helpful, not just to cultivate self-compassion, but also to be compassionate to others. Because if you practice taking that pause, as you mentioned, like when you start beating on yourself, you right away, you remind yourself that, no, no, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. It's okay. I made a mistake. Or you, you know, give yourself that speech that we all do like that internal monologue. I think when you see someone else messing up or someone else doing something that pisses you off, or that just, you know, does something that annoys you, you can, I think you would also take that pause before you react to other people as well. I think it would just become a part of your interactions. Do, do you think so? Because yes. And, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true. It's all about finding that space of awareness, noticing, oh, I am falling into my old patterns. And I think one of the big reasons that people meditate or start any kind of contemplative practice is to cultivate that awareness because you know you might think of meditation as so something that doesn't connect directly to the rest of your life but if you think about it as a way of cultivating awareness of your own patterns whether it's in showing compassion toward yourself or toward others um if you can notice oh i'm doing this thing again that i said i didn't want to do that then gives you a jumping off point to do something different so cultivating that awareness i think is so important whether it's through the force of habit that you you just pull yourself up and do that over and over again whether it's through a meditation practice that enhances your self-awareness I, I think there are a number of ways to get there but whatever the route i, I think getting to that destination is key yeah Wonderful. And I think we can create, with the next question, we can create some incentive for people to do everything that you've recommended up to this point. Talking about how kindness and generosity impacts our brain health, because I know that there is a correlation here. There's been a lot of, I know that you've shared research on the subject before. 
Yes, it, it's so interesting. That that was one of the most fun times I had while I was researching my book about heroism. What is actually happening within our brains when we decide to be kind, when we decide to be generous? And I actually participated in an MRI experiment myself where I let them scan my brain. I answered some questions. Okay, would you like to donate to this charity? Yes or no, that, that kind of thing. And um, so, so this economist at the University of Oregon, Bill Harbaugh, he looked at, well, what really is happening in people's brains as they make these kind of giving decisions. And probably the most interesting thing that he found was that the nucleus accumbens, which is an area of the brain associated with reward, that that area lit up on the brain scans when people decided to be generous, to do something kind. Um, so I, I, I think it creates a win-win scenario um, in terms of our brains that when we give, not only are we helping someone else, but we're experiencing the, this reward w within our brains. And so that I, I think raises the question too, well, can you sort of get addicted to giving? If giving is giving you this brain reward when you're doing it, well, I, I think, yes, in a sense, we can get addicted, but maybe it's an addiction that we want to cultivate, unlike some more more harmful addictions. But yeah, but yeah. yeah again, this is going back to the power of, of habit, of, of reinforcement. Well, our brain's re reward machinery can actually help us in that in that cause. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's good incentive for us to do that. But if we like, it would be wonderful. I think if the whole world could be addicted to kindness and generosity, I can only imagine what the world would be like. <laughs> Fairy tales come alive, I think. <laughs> but yeah, how do we getting there? Is the other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> very true. But this brings up another concern that I have. Like there are people who are very compassionate and they practice it actively in their life. But how do we practice compassion? Like you talked about tough compassion and I've actually read that article and I found it very useful because I think this is something that a lot of people need to learn. There is a like also, you know, as a coach also, I often notice like there is difference between helping people and just validating their drama. Like you're just giving them a space to value and that's never helpful. And then you, you reach a point where you have to tell them, okay, stop this is what we're gonna do now <laughs> and that's never easy to do because you're like drowning in compassion and empathy for them so can we talk about how people can practice compassion without letting others push their boundaries because it's not okay when your compassion leads you down paths that are harmful to you yes that that is a really good question and i i think i was obsessing over this question for a long time how how do i show compassion while still putting up strong boundaries when i need to and i i think this can be a really tricky thing especially for women i would say because we are culturally we're just so socialized to be accommodating to say yes okay to to let those boundaries slide and um what one thing i i came to in the process of uh researching this idea of tough compassion is that instead of it like if you are somebody who feels really uncomfortable with directly calling somebody out when they're acting hurtfully like you, you don't want to yell at them you don't want to give them a piece of your mind or, or do something that maybe would be counterproductive would cause them to withdraw 
Um, another option mm -hmm. is that you try to convey the impact that their hurtful actions are having by telling them a story. And I'll, I'll give an example of what I mean. Um, let's say you have a relative or somebody in your life and just out of the blue, they say something homophobic or otherwise in insulting or denigrating to a certain group of people. Um, well, instead of starting to yell at them and starting this back and forth dialogue, maybe that's not going to go anywhere productive, you can actually describe what kind of effect does that behavior have on other people. Like you could say something like, you know, I have a really close friend who's gay and she's talked to me. She tells me that she hears insults like that all the time. And she's been attacked in public, which is incredibly traumatic experience for her. And it's really affected the degree of trust that she's able to have in other human beings. She doesn't, she doesn't think that people are going to respect her as a human. And it's really sad. So, so you're telling the story about what is the human impact when you say something hurtful, you're sort of putting up a mirror for them to show them the human impact. You're not saying right. don't do this. You're not saying you're a horrible person. You're saying, okay, here's the human impact of what you're doing. And it's a very hard line sometimes to walk to, to engage in this kind of storytelling without, you know, jumping on somebody with, without going completely ballistic on them. Um, and sometimes we all, yeah are tempted to do that. But I, I think that in terms of over time, potentially having people think about behaving a different way, storytelling, it's far more likely to be effective because you're not, you're not contradicting what they're saying. You're not giving them a reason to, to dig in and to, to strike back at you. You're just saying, you know, I have this friend and here's what my friend told me. I'm just sharing it with you and do with it what you will. Yeah. And can you share the same method when it comes to personal, uh, like family members or friends? Like there are a lot of scenarios where we feel compassion towards the other person. We want to help them. But like, for example, like when people ask for money, if you have very little to, you know, in your own pocket, it's not going to be as easy for you to give that to someone else but if that person is someone you care about and you feel for them, you want to help in those situations, you may have to prioritize your own needs and ask those people to look at other avenues. So do you think this could be helpful, like storytelling, as you said, and like letting people know how it's going to affect you yourself, not someone else, but you, do you think that would help them draw that line with the people who they love, the people in their personal life? Yes, I, I, I think it could. I think if you're specific, if you, you can, I mean, depending on how much, much detail you're comfortable sharing, you could say, yeah. look, I'm already um, short of what I need to pay my rent this month. Um, I had to buy fewer groceries than usual. I'm, I'm really financially, I'm in a tough situation right now. And so I really regret that I, I can't help you with the money situation, but please let me know if there's anything else, if you need to be taken to a, an appointment, if there are any other avenues that, that we can go that, that I can help you. It's just that the money avenue 
really isn't open to me right now. So I, I, I think you could take that kind of approach and yeah. you might get a variety of responses, but when you don't make it so much about shutting them down as saying, look, here's where I am right now. Um, this is the reality of my situation. And that's why I, I just can't give any money at this time. Yeah, yeah. I have seen situations like that in my social circle. And a lot of the time, the response you get is clearly you don't care about my situation. And to that, I've always felt like you are bringing so much care to that equation, but the other person is not matching that if not now at some point down the line this friendship is going to hit that point where you will be you know you'll be facing the reality that the other person doesn't care as much so maybe you you've reached that point that breaking point where you just have to walk away and hopefully this person will grow and come back into your life someday and you can have a more open loving conversation but this is just not it this is not the time for you and for this for friendship or for this relationship to thrive would that is that an okay thing to add here because it feels kind of cruel but i don't know yeah no i i I think you're absolutely on the mark and when somebody reacts in that way when you tell them look I, i i'm sorry but i don't have money and they react by attacking you that tells you a lot about what kind of person that is and what you can expect from all future interactions with that person um if they stay sort of at their current level of awareness and i think we have to be honest with ourselves about that and i like what you said about leaving the door open maybe in the future if that person is taking a different perspective you could make more room for that but i i think sometimes you do have to make a decision about friendships that's made from the standpoint of tough compassion like i i really do love this person i i wish them well but they are attacking me and because I also have self-compassion, I, I value my own mental health and my mental health is suffering in this relationship. And so I have to kindly step back right now. That that really is a very justified response in these type of situations. Yeah. And we can't forget that sometimes the compassionate thing to do is to say no, because you could have all the money in the world, but you know for a fact that if you keep giving, there is going to be no end to it. So sometimes the compassionate thing is to be cruel to the other person. Like a lot of the times if someone is going through an addiction or even any kind of mental health issue, they need help. And sometimes you have to push them in very unkind ways to get them the help they need. So we also have to remember that. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I think our culture sometimes labels that as unkind or as cruel when the way I see it is actually one of the kindest things that you can do for that person because when you step back in a way you're saying look this is your situation i trust you to handle this if you jump in and save somebody every time they get drunk and they wake up on the lawn in the morning like if you pull them in if you bring them back to bed you're saying i don't trust you to handle your own self but when you step back you're saying this is your life Mm -hmm, i'm mm -hmm. trusting you figure out a way to make things work better than you're doing now. And I I think people underestimate that. And especially I see with parents of adult children, um, they're trying to get their kids the best job to save them. Like if they get arrested, they come bail them out, whatever the case may be. And it's just a really toxic message to be sending to somebody that 
you need my help all the time. Otherwise, that you're not going to be able to function. And I think maybe people aren't aware that that is the message they're sending when they enable people. But it really, really is. Yeah, that was brilliantly put. And I'm so glad that you shared it because I've tried to, like, I could never have put this in such a cohesive way. But this is such an important point for each and every one of us to learn. Like, when I was in depression, my depression went on for a while. If somebody had just told me to get my shit together, <laughs> it may not... <laughs> In the moment, it I probably would have had a very unpleasant reaction to that, but I would have gotten help a lot sooner, you know, and it, things would wouldn't have gotten as bad as they did with me. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's uh, it's difficult to do, but definitely yeah. something everyone should consider because we all have people in our life who need that kind of compassion. Yes, yes, the the tough compassion, and yeah, and you and you can do it time kindly too. You don't have to say look, you need to get your shit together. You can say, <laughs> okay, like, I understand that this is really tough for you. I've gone through something similar. What step can you take next to make sure that tomorrow is better than today or the next month is better than this month and then brainstorm with them. And, and so I think it can be maybe a little bit coercive and still be kind at the same time. And sometimes striking that balance can be a difficult thing to do, but if you're in a close relationship with somebody who's dealing with this kind of thing, I think you will know, you will have an intuitive sense for what can really help this person move forward. What can give them a little nudge w without having them shut down. Yes. Um, so you may have to experiment maybe with a few different uh, approaches, but I, I think coming back to the, that concrete, okay, what is the next step that you're going to take given what your goal is, how can we get you there? What is the first step on the ladder? Yeah, definitely go with what Elizabeth has said. Don't ever tell someone in depression to get their shit together. That is that is an idiotic, unkind thing to say. Don't say that. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, I mean, you know, I, I totally hear what you're saying, but yeah, there, there are ways to convey the message, get your shit together without actually saying that. It worked, <laughs> yeah. like it, it was what worked with me because I remember when I had a breakdown and I was like, I literally turned to myself and said, dude, you gotta get your shit together. This cannot be your life. And, but it, I'm, I'm stubborn and I'm tough and I'm very arrogant at times. So that worked with me but it probably wouldn't work with and i've spent time creating content on the subject and i cannot believe i came up with get your shit together please don't say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i think when i was depressed um my dad was pretty good at saying to me look you need to get yourself together he didn't say get your shit together but that was essentially the message but he also built me up while i was saying it he, he said you know we're, we're proud of you you've done so many great things um you can keep going i get that that was sort of the basic message that if you can find a way to communicate the faith that you have in that person mm -hmm. while giving that encouragement okay here's the next step um, I think that is a good combination to strive yeah, for. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a cool dad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, everything that we've discussed up to this point, I think all of it would be easier for people who are more secure in themselves. I think people who have a sense of safety within themselves. This is like a big theme with me and I try to integrate it in as many episodes as I can because I do believe that if you have that safe space inside yourself, I think you can deal with more pain 
whether it's coming from other people, whether it is of other people or it's your own pain. I think it's just easier. So is there anything you would recommend to our listeners that they can do to create a safe space within themselves so that they can deal with these things better, come out more compassionate, show their softer side in a more secure way and then and in turn create a more secure environment for others as well? Yeah, that that is such an important question. And as I learned while I was writing my book, this is something that researchers are looking at very closely at Stanford. Um, they have an approach that's called compassion cultivation training. And I actually participated in this course. And one of the things that we learned to do was we would meditate specifically on people we knew who had recently gone through a difficult experience. And then there's sort of a process. You imagine yourself mentally sending them love and goodwill. And at first I found this really difficult because in order to send them the love and goodwill, you have to open yourself up to the reality of their pain, of of their difficulty. And one thing I, I think I got out of it, what this practice teaches you is how to feel more comfortable in the presence of somebody else's pain. And when we can get comfortable with that, that really that affects the quality of our relationships, that affects the connections that we're able to make with people. I, I know for me, it's very true that I felt awkward. I felt uncomfortable not knowing what to say when other people are in pain. And so I'm not proud of myself, but I, you know, the first instinct can be to try to avoid yeah. that. But w when you can develop a way to sit with the uncomfortable reality of that pain, then you're going to be the best equipped to help them get through it. And um, another thing I found was that when I really strive to understand what somebody else is going through, it, it's motivating in terms of adding the compassion piece of taking action to do something to help the other person through their pain. So it can definitely soften us up and open us up when we focus on what somebody is going through, even though it feels uncomfortable. Yeah, this sounds like something not so easy to do, but I think it would be life-altering if you can do that, if you can act, make this an active practice in your life. I think this would just change who you are, how you show up in your relationships, how you show up in interactions with people who may not be as close to you also. I think it would yeah. just yeah, it would just shift the energy, I think. <laughs> it would be such a wonderful thing to do. And I definitely want to learn more about that. So any other resources you want to recommend to people that can help them learn more about this subject? Yes, the first thing I would recommend is to check out Greater Good magazine online. It is greatergood.berkeley.edu. Um, there's no paywall. It's free to everybody. And there's a huge trove of articles there about every facet of compassion, including self-compassion, compassion in the midst of the kind of challenges that we're facing in the world right now. And I've been a contributor there for a number of years and I love it, but there are so many important voices on greater good. There are researchers, activists, journalists, and I, I think you can trust it too, because our, our tagline is science-based insights for a meaningful life. And so as contributors, we really try to ground 
the recommendations that we make on solid science around the most recent research. We're not just coming up with them um, just because we think they sound good. So yeah. there, there's a layer of rigor to it. So I would definitely recommend that pe people go to greater good. Yeah, I'll add my vote to that. Like if ever I'm researching something that's in my like my list of publications I hit to make sure that I'm on the right track. So definitely. And it's it's all it always it's a beautiful read. The, the way all the articles or write-ups are written, they're just they're beautifully done. So yeah. definitely, yes. Thank you for that. I will make sure to share the the link in the episode description. So if someone is looking, they can find it there. And now for like the question that I ask all my guests, um, if you were only allowed to give one advice to the listeners to help them live a better life, what would that one advice be? Yes, and that that's a, an essential question. And if I had to say one thing to people, I would say find ways to turn the pain that you're going through into purpose. And this is something I explored in my book too. And what the research suggests is that when we do go through difficult experiences, we might be more likely to feel compassion for somebody else in a tough situation. And people who study this call it altruism born of suffering. And just to boil it down, when you try to make meaning from the hard times that you've been through, it can set you on a mission. You can say to yourself, okay, I, I went through this really tough time, but has it equipped me in some way with knowledge that I can use to help other people? And in my book, I write about a, a woman named Jody Blanco who was, was bullied through her school years. And then as an adult, she became a really powerful anti-bullying advocate who has done incredible good uh, around the world. So one thing I would say is not to seek out the tough times, but since we all have to go through them, um, think yeah. about them, meditate on them a little bit, ask yourself, are there things that I've learned from that and through that that I could use to help somebody else in a similar situation and if you're looking for a direction if you're asking yourself what should i do next asking yourself these questions is a great starting point that was the amazing elizabeth swoboda if you want to know more about our guest or you want to explore the resources mentioned during the episode the links will be in the episode description if you want to dive into similar content you can find it on my website kratimera.com I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed creating it. Now I'll be back next week. Till then, please do take care of yourself.